Because I did not catch Macbeth, he blindly stabbed his knee. Welcome to Rite of Passage. I'm the host this week, Caleb, and uh, I'll be interviewed by Mr. Uh, Jonathan Martin. <laughs> exactly. And today we are going to talk about a person we've been wanting to talk about ever since we first came up with the idea of doing this show when the show was in its nascent, really, really nascent phase, almost conceptual. An episode on Emily Dickinson, one of the greatest writers of American literature. She's up there with people like Thoreau, Emerson, uh, Washington Irving. If you know of a list of like best writers and most significant prolific writers in American literary history, you can't make one without mentioning Emily Dickinson. And uh, absolutely, yeah. Especially so, American writers. Oh, for so sure. In the past, like when people were looking like really good writers, there were maybe a couple anecdotes from Ben Franklin. But most of the time, people were just getting their like you know culture from overseas. Like there'd be the Romantic Movement that happened in uh, England at the time with uh, Percy Bysshe Shelley and uh, William, the guy that did the the Tiger poem, and. Uh, What's another guy? There was, and people like him, and again, Highway was another another big one that you might actually be familiar with. Is there was an author named Samuel Taylor Coleridge? He's known for two major poems. One of the poems is Kublai Khan, where he essentially kind of depicts what he thinks the palace of Kublai Khan, great. Chinese emperor of the Yuan dynasty, what his palaces looked like and stuff in Xanadu. But his big poem that you might have at least heard unintentionally or just learned in school is Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner. Why might you have recognized this poem even if you're not into literature? Let me explain in a few notes. That's right. Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner by Iron Maiden, while not one-to-one, uses much of the original text in its interpretation of the poem. It's really quite amazing if you actually look at it lyric for lyric. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. That's awesome. That movement, that classical movement, that uh, romantic movement, didn't hit the United States until like the mid-18th century, 19th century, mid-19th century. And I guess that was the period of time of people like Thoreau, Emerson, and Dickinson. So, but again... This is less about the times around Dickinson, even though those were quite important, and more about the Dickinson herself, since we don't know very much about Dickinson. Hmm. Right, so that uh, that gets us into our first question, uh, which we'll be kind of talking about uh, on this episode, and that's just general, what do we know about Emily Dickinson and her life? 
The unfortunate thing about Dickinson is that compared to many of her literary peers in the New England area, very little is known about Emily Dickinson, largely because she was something of a homebody, if you will. Furthermore, a good chunk of her poems were never published because her father was very much against the idea of women publishing. But there are some things we know about Emily the person more than Emily the different poems she wrote when she was alive. Well, when she got to a certain age, she attended Amherst Academy, which would eventually become the University of Massachusetts Amherst. And there she had a pretty good time, and she learned, and she studied, and she started to grow her inclinations towards poetry. And then they shift her off to Mount Holyoke Academy. This is a place where it's less about you learning your trade or your craft and more about you being as perfect an adherent to a certain religion as you can be. I know it sounds kind of crazy. You go to school to learn, not necessarily to unlearn. But right. as someone who spent a year at a school just like that, I can confirm that much more emphasis was put on the different sermons and events we were required to attend as opposed to the classes we were told to attend. In fact, if you took over the entire like year and looked at the ratio of time you spent doing different things at the school, classes would probably be about maybe 51, 52, and the rest would be you go to chapel every day. When you're not in chapel, you're in a small group where your leader tells you how much you suck. And then there's Sunday. You are required to go to a local church, but only a local church that has been approved of by your administration. And don't even get me started on this is not something that the current students have to do now at that school. But when I was there on spring break, we were required to stay on campus. Sunday every week, go to a whole bunch of different speakers talking about stuff. It was miserable. It was a part of the year that was getting right into, you know, the, the summertime, which are oppressive, especially in South Carolina or whatever. But they made us do it. Yikes. It sucked, but that should give you an idea of what Dickinson's experience at Mount Holyoke was most likely like. So, after all of that, she did what every college student has at least doing after graduating, and she went home. She went back to Amherst to live with her father and her sister and her brother. Around this time, her brother Austin decided he was going to marry someone. And the woman he, woman he chose was uh, Sue Gilbert, a local woman. And so it was arranged and they got married. But as Austin and Sue and Emily kept living in the same house, it was soon realized on Emily's part that she was more in love with Sue Gilbert than with any of the other potential suitors that had ever been presented to her. And so commenced the 
Boston Marriage between Sue Gilbert and Emily Dickinson. For those that are not aware, a Boston marriage is a euphemism for two women being in a lesbian relationship long term. And as strange as it may seem, that's not even the most notable instance of this happening. Mm. The woman who wrote America the Beautiful. When she wasn't out traveling and going up to Colorado, she herself had a Boston marriage. People have tried to deny the orientation of people like Emily Dickinson or Sue Gilbert or that woman who wrote the uh, America the Beautiful. But in doing so, you deliberately decide that you do not wish to know everything about the subject you're trying to discuss. You are purposely limiting yourself in your study of these individuals who need their whole story told. I digress, though. That's basically the story of Emily Dickinson as the person. Say, uh, just a note: the name of the the name of the uh, author of the lyrics, uh, Catherine Lee Bates. Yes, her. All right. Okay. So, uh, moving a little on from uh, details about Dickinson, uh, right? We know that only around 10, I think, pieces of her writing were published prior to her death. So, most of her poems, the vast majority, you would say, uh, are uh, or were all published posthumously. So, uh, how were they discovered and how did how did we come to know the name of Emily Dickinson? Well, the thing was, is that like her sister who had known about all of these poems and stuff, once Emily was deceased and stuff, she realized there's all these poems here, thousands of poems, and they're all so beautiful. We have to publish these. And so in a couple of months or so, a good chunk, if not all, of the thousand poems were published. They were published posthumously, of course. But it seems that much like a painter like uh, Vincent van Gogh, her celebrity and popularity exceeded her as much of what she had when she was alive. She was more famous when dead. And while that's true of a lot of figures throughout history, for this particular subject that we're talking about today, it's specifically interesting because Emily Dickinson is one of this crowd of posthumous, like, poster boys, I guess, or poster girls in this case. So, that is how her poems were discovered and how we continue to remember her as sort of a tragic figure or possibly as a positive sapphic figure, too. But if you're just an average person reading Dickinson, you can't really talk about Dickinson without talking about the fact that she died before all of her work got out and people started to realize that she was a top-tier, top-notch poet. So, yeah. yeah. And um, I think it's also worth pointing out um, just an additional detail that uh, that... Lavinia Dickinson, Emily's sister, uh, actually took the poems to 
Mabel Lo- uh, Loomis Todd, um, a, a friend of the family, maybe even a uh, salacious uh, lover of Austin's, uh, to have the poems published. Um, that's just kind of a interesting little bit of controversy after she died, and and once the they were started to be once they started collecting up the poems for publishing, um, it's actually somebody that that was having an affair with Emily's brother that actually got the poems uh, mm-hmm. got the poems published. Uh, you mentioned the last name Todd. Was mm-hmm. she by any way related to uh, Mary Todd, the wife of Abraham Lincoln? That I'd have to... Um, let's find out. <laughs> I'm not sure. Um, she yeah, certainly could would, be. It was, the right, it was the right time period. Yeah, this might even make this story a bit more interesting. Let's see... Um, I'm looking it up right now. So I got spouse, biography. Oh, sorry. Her, her, uh, Todd is her married name. Oh, okay. Uh, her, her, uh, um, her maiden name is Loomis. So, uh, mm. her husband, David Todd, I think we could try to find that. Uh, try to find that information out, but I don't think it doesn't look like it. I don't think I'm okay, not seeing anything. Just a coincidence. About that. Yeah, just okay. a coincidence. Yeah. Um, but yeah, she, yeah, she was having an affair with Austin, so yeah. that's uh definitely some uh <laughs> yeah, sure. some controversy uh, as well as uh according again according to. Uh, the Emily Dickinson Museum's page on Mabel Lewis Todd. Um, she actually spent several years editing and collecting the poems, including making changes to them um, that weren't necessarily Emily's original intent. Um, so, you know, mm. it's not even like it's not even like. Lavinia got these poems to somebody and then they immediately got published by someone who really cared. It took about 10 years and then she uh, she didn't even publish them t- untouched. She made some changes. For sure. Well, yeah. So I guess in that case we can probably move on to our next question. Uh, Okay, so some of this you've already talked about a little bit earlier, but uh, one of her most important relationships in general was with Sue, was with Susan Gilbert, Sue Gilbert. Um, she actually received, I think, more letters from Emily than any other more letters or or sorry, more poems from from Emily than any other person. Uh, so clearly, one of the most central and pillar relationships so uh what do we know about uh what do we know about their relationship in addition to a um a believed kind of sapphic or romantic relationship unfortunately that's another thing about the times is that these boston marriages were largely kept clandestine because you know 
you could legitimately die either by mob or by the government itself if someone found out. If you were open about it. So we don't really know too much about her relationship with Sue Gilbert, but we can look at Emily's poetry, her love poetry, and if we picture the lover in question being Sue Gilbert, it gives some indication of how intense the relationship was. So, and that's just a problem throughout literature is that a lot of the time you can't really, I mean, you can prove that it was a sapphic relationship, but you can't really get any details about the nature of that relationship. Because, again, scholars throughout history have tried to keep all of that under the rug, you know, so that someone like Dickinson can be acceptable in a society that doesn't really like who she was in spite of liking what she wrote. So, and it's always been this way ever since time immemorial, all the way up to today, you know. One of the most egregious examples of this is probably Martin Luther King Jr. If you talk to somebody about MLK, They will always talk about the same part of his speech. He dreamed of a place where people were judged not by the color of their skin, but the quality of their character. And while that's a good quote, that using that as a summation of everything Martin Luther King represented is just disingenuous. The man didn't just fight for that stuff. He fought for... Amongst racial inequality, he also fought for, like, you know, equal pay and stuff like that, and helping not just black people, but white people to receive fair wages and stuff like that. And because of this, he was shot in Memphis because everyone called him too radical. Because this was back in a time where it was a stupid idea that has led us to today, where all our parents are like, you know, you have to work harder. Obviously, your jobs suck more than the jobs we had to do, and they don't pay as well. But you have to work harder. It's unfortunate that there is this kind of generational gap of parents and children that don't understand each other, or parents who do perfectly understand and are just tyrants really but yeah that's the same thing with like uh dickinson you'll talk about your favorite poem from her but he'll refuse to acknowledge the person and the situation that created the that poetry and so ultimately the poems are still nice but they're not nearly as deep as they could be interpretation wise but again this is supposed to be a relatively happy podcast. All right, moving on to the next thing. Uh, okay, so obviously major influence uh, for for all of literature, but prime, you know, incredibly important as an American, uh, an American as an American author. So, uh, right, we don't want to only talk about literature on this podcast. So, what are some other mediums that we can kind of experience Dickinson through. Never thought you'd ask. 
Now, we have one major medium that we're going to focus on, but for now, let's just talk about some of the tertiary stuff. A couple of years ago, there was a book released called Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow. It was actually this year, by the way. Which is, in and of itself, a reference to Macbeth. But that's besides the point, too. Anyways, within this book, it depicts three different women at three different stages in life and history. The second of these women is a game developer, an indie game developer, and she is developing a game called Emily Blasters. In fact, it is entirely possible to play this Emily Blasters game on your browser if you can find a way to get to it. All it really involves is just, you know, it's like Poggle, I guess. You know, the game where you shoot the balls and try and get them to match so that they can, you know, fall down or whatever. It's kind of like that, but what you're trying to do is hit words in order to form phrases from Emily Dickinson's poetry. It's two, it's about two levels long, but it's worth at least checking out. But, it's three total, uh, and you can get to it by going to Gabriel, GabrielZevin.com. Uh, you can find it right there on the front of her website. Uh, I'll, we'll put a, a link to her website in the description uh, in case you want to play the game. It's it's pretty funny. Uh, mm -hmm. But also, I, I talked. To, I, sorry, I talked over you earlier. But the book was actually published uh, this year. Um, really, yeah, relatively recently, um, like last month, recently. Cool. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so that's Tomorrow and Tomorrow Tomorrow by Gabriel Zevin. And on her website, you can play a uh, little web game about putting Emily Dickinson's poetry together called Emily Blaster. Pretty funny. Indeed. And, uh, yeah, and I guess there was a film that was made called A Quiet Passion. We, unfortunately, did not get the chance to watch it, but from what I have heard from John... It gets really strange, as in like I watched it. Yeah, yeah. I actually cool. watched it. Um, there is a there is a second film that came out a couple years ago called Wild Nights with Emily. Um, we didn't watch that one, but A Quiet Passion is uh, directed by Terrence Davies, uh, starring Cynthia Nixon as uh, Emily Dickinson, and just kind of goes from. Kind of, kind of a like a summary of her life, uh, which wasn't really that long. It was like I think she died at 56. So, um, and uh, it's just kind of a summary of major events in her in her life. And the kind of interesting thing about this film is that it's very, very quiet, very moody. Uh, a lot of the a lot of the scenes are very uh, stiffly, stiffly choreographed, um, and the lines are delivered very matter-of-factly. Sometimes, even if the scene doesn't call for that type of delivery, uh, but the main focus, I think, is Cynthia Nixon as Emily Dickinson because she begins playing Dickinson while she's twenty-five or twenty-six. And uh, or even earlier in Emily's life, and Nixon is 
or was probably in her late 40s, early 50s at the time of filming. And you can see it. You can see it in her face and on her hands. And all of the characters, uh, Austin Dickinson, Vinnie Dickinson, Sue, uh, are all seemingly probably 15 to 20 years too old to to be playing the characters that they're supposed to be playing. And that required a level of dis of of disbelief suspension that I just couldn't uh I couldn't get on board with. I think the performances were probably good for what they were, but I would not have cast these people as these characters for at least the first chunk of the film, probably most of the film until the end when Emily is near death or and dying that I would have maybe recast for an older character and they did cast somebody else for Emily is a young girl. Um, But other than the odd casting, uh, it is kind of a very plotting film. Um, We'll we'll talk a little bit more about that that film and maybe its differences from the other major piece of media we're going to talk about, which was Dickinson, the show on Apple TV+. So why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Indeed, uh, this actually is the main focus medium-wise. When it comes to Emily Dickinson, and a large part of the reason we decided we wanted to do this cast in the first place, the show is Dickinson. The network is Apple Plus, and well, let's just start off with a bit of a dramatic person day for sure. Uh, the main character is obviously Emily Dickinson, as played by Haley Steinfeld, and I believe Steinfeld does a very good job of displaying a lot of the maturity you'd find as an adult, along with all of the immaturity and playfulness you'd find as someone who is an adult, but hasn't really gotten a chance to go out into the world just yet. And it basically recounts through the events of her life, but it's all done through a lens of magical realism. Magical realism is when there are events that are happening around you, and those events are real. But the way you're perceiving them is really wacky. You're perceiving them, you two are perceiving the same thing, but you're considering them in different ways. So, magical realism is you relying on what is known as an an unreliable narrator as he takes you on this sort of pseudo-magical journey through everyday life. It's a very, very cool genre. and. Who knows, maybe we do like an episode talking about magical realism. Since for me personally, when it comes to creative writing, I really love throwing in me some uh, magical realism. But in this it's case... It's really interesting. <laughs> and when we say magical realism, we should probably be honest here. Um, Lil Wayne, or Wiz Khalifa, I can't remember which one. Lil Wayne. Wiz, yeah, Wiz Khalifa. Wiz Khalifa is death. In the show, every once in a while, he will show up in his black carriage, all because I did not stop for death, he kindly stopped for me. And Emily will get in every time. She'll ask, Is it my time to die yet? And every time, Wiz Khalif will be like, Nah. One of the times she gets into the carriage and she gets to meet Edgar Allan Poe. And he's played by Nick Kroll. And he's actually kind of a bit of a jerk in the afterlife. 
Another interesting thing about the show is, of course, the co- the cameos. At one point, Louisa May Alcott comes in, the writer of uh, Little Women. I don't know how accurate that is in the actual timeline, but yeah, I thought that was really cool, especially since that Little Women remake came out like a year or two ago, which I really enjoyed also. But anyways, the probably the most surprising and funniest cameo was uh, John Mulaney as Thoreau writing Walden out at Walden Pond. You oftentimes, when you read that poem, you imagine of just like this really isolated cabin with the crickets chirping, mosquitoes occasionally biting or whatever, and you're just at peace and one with nature. Turns out that Thoreau was kind of a stay-at-home, never-leaves-his-parent kid. His mom had to bring him his laundry, and every day while he was at that cabin, not far off from where he was, you know, far from being an isolated canyon, everybody knew where it was, and so every day there'd be all these tourists who'd come down and try and get pictures of the elusive Thoreau. So just something to keep in mind the next time someone talks about how Walden was the greatest poem ever written. You might have to be the guy, the salt saker in this particular instance. The guy that is unfortunately compelled to throw in that little grain of salt of, yeah, Thoreau was not as amazing as you think he is. Yeah, it was a really good show. Another important element, I think, to note is that the costuming the setting uh, are all period accurate or Mm. period accurate ish, maybe to uh, the casual viewer. Uh, But the script is extremely modern. It is. Uh, People talk about, or people use words like totally or cool or sick uh, or to, to, you know, just an everyday conversation, um, which of course is completely inaccurate to the time period. I, I do think they get, they, did a good job of matching uh, matching the script and the words they chose to the characters uh, as they're trying to portray them. Uh, I think I think they did quite a quite a good job accuracy wise, but it is uh, it is quite funny that the script is completely modern. Uh, the soundtrack, soundtrack is almost exclusively uh, modern day pop rap uh billy eilish uh is a multiple songs of billy eilish's are are featured prominently in the show uh which is a good match i think i would say that's a good match for uh for emily dickinson um so it really asks you to suspend your disbelief and kind of take in the show for what it is and it's not even necessarily timeline accurate to emily's actual life uh, but in comparison to uh, A Quiet Passion, which also has a couple scenes of maybe uh, a vision that Emily has or, or some an imagination running wild, which the show features frequently, um, it, it doesn't rely on this magical realism at all, uh, I would say. It uses more of just kind of visions of uh of death that Emily seems to have. Um one thing though that the two pieces have in common and I would almost wager that 
the Apple's show uh, was inspired by is Emily reciting her poetry in full during the film. Um, very often she'll be in a scene or in a sequence and she'll be reciting a poem. Um, I thought that was a very interesting touch, especially since I watched the movie after the show and I'd seen that used in the show. Every episode features a specific poem and at some point in that episode somebody will recite that poem in full. Uh, so I thought it was very interesting that the movie did that, and it did it first. Um, it's at least two years. Um, it released two years prior to Apple's show, so I'm sure they might have even been production at the same time. But that was an interesting um, similarity between yeah. the two, I would say. Sure. And if anything, Dickinson, the show, reflects something that I I think is very important when talking about this particular cast is that. There is a lot of stuff that we will discuss that is not 100% accurate to the source material, or in some cases appears to be flying completely off in a different direction to the source material. But that does not necessarily mean, in all cases, that we're not going to include it and discuss it, because more important than literal accuracy is thematic accuracy. If you're giving off a vibe... That would be a vibe that you'd experience in the literature if you had actually read it back when the thing was new. Then really, the story has proceeded to pass on. It's changed form a bit, but its core is still the same. Every story ever told lives and dies on thieving. And I'd rather, it's, and I'd rather watch a film that's necess not necessarily 100% accurate, but has a theme that sits well with like the author's intentions and stuff rather than something that's completely accurate, but doesn't feel like in the theme feels like kind of removed almost otherworldly as opposed to right in there with the emotions and stuff. I think the, sh the movie, a quiet passion does a decent job of trying to represent, um, the kind of person Emily might have been and the kind of people that um, her community might have the people, the, the kind of people those in her community might have been. I think it does a good job of that. The problem is almost every line is delivered by somebody who's the wrong age for the character. And like more recent example, Dear Evan Hansen oh, from last sure. year, uh, casting a competent or even good actor in a role that is an age that they do not match, uh, the viewers can tell. Casual viewers can tell. And it feels weird to watch because the dialogue that you're hearing that was written with a 25-year-old woman in mind is now being delivered by a middle-aged woman. Uh, and that feels odd. It's harder for me to, to suspend my disbelief and by that that is happening um but the dialogue for dickens for this movie for dickinson in that in that movie is very witty it's very thoughtful it's very deep um it's definitely a different emily than the one in the show uh but you can see that i feel that they did have kind of the same starting point and then went in two different directions um 
but I, it's hard to say that they they didn't get the theme right. It's more of I just feel that the the casting was uh was completely wrong, even though the performances might have been good. In fact, the the movie's got ninety eight ninety two percent on Rotten Tomatoes, and every review is hailing Cynthia Nixon's performance. I'm sure she did a great job. However, I at no point was convinced that she was a twenty five year old woman at any moment and that completely broke the layer of fantasy for me and it just felt like a very odd live action adaptation as a result um probably worth watching if you're interested in dickinson because it's an interesting portrayal uh but i really struggled to get past that uh that kind of major difference and we're kind of talking ahead of ourselves because uh the next thing we're going to discuss here is the important differences between the show's version of of uh emily and the film's version and like we've already been talking about magical realism to bring in bring out the emotional impact uh and the imagination of emily in the show uh also something that was unexpected is I with a title like A Quiet Passion, I was kind of expecting the show to dive into uh, Sue and Emily's relationship, both that it is a lifelong friendship uh, and that it might have been more than just a friendship. Um, th- this film does not do that in the slightest. Uh, Emily pines after uh, men pretty much exclusively uh, in the movie. Sue is actually an extremely minor character. Uh, she's barely relevant. I think they have one ma- important scene together in the whole movie. Uh, she's just kind of this... She's the wife of Austin, and that's that's the most important connection to Sue. Uh, not Emily's friendship with her. Uh, whereas in the show, you really feel that they've been friends for a long time. They're both young women. The whole... M- concept of marriage is terrifying to that version of sue um and you can really tell how important that friendship is which was again probably emily's most important friendship or relationship in her lifetime and this movie glosses over it with one one scene between the two of them in the whole two-hour runtime mm-hmm. uh just seems like an odd choice to make when everything else seems to be targeting a very realistic, very quote-unquote accurate portrayal. Mm. You know, when you were talking about Evan Hansen, there was one musical in particular that could have ended up going down the same like, path, and that was the In the Heights movie. I mean, like, when the In the Heights movie was first greenlit, like, back in 2010 yeah. or something. I mean, I'm pretty sure they were all going ahead with, oh, let's put Lin-Manuel Miranda back into Usnavi's character or whatever. But eventually, as the thing dragged on in production and stuff, they said, you know what? You can just play a, like a cameo here. And the difference between Dear Evan Hansen and In the Heights is uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda was like, okay, I am a bit old to be playing Usnavi at this age in my life so let's get a new person in to do it and they did they got a great usnavi the film itself was great even though it wasn't as well watched as people were hoping i liked it 
Yeah. But again, I really like In the Heights, so. Right. So you watched it and you liked it. It makes sense. Um, yeah, I didn't know about that, but that's right. Great example of it going the right direction. Uh, I I understand as somebody who has characters that I really love, uh, and as somebody who's who's been on the stage before, uh, I can definitely imagine like, oh man, I would love to be this character. That sounds awesome. Uh, but I also know that there's just certain characters that I'm not going to be the right person to play. Oh, absolutely. Whether it's age, ability, whatever. Um, and I would never... I'm not saying this happened uh, with Cynthia Nixon. I don't want to put this on her. But I would rather not play the role and have somebody else do it than play it myself, um, if that's what needs to happen. Uh, maybe if nobody else would ever play the role, then, like, sure... To get the whole project going, I guess that makes sense, but um, I don't, I don't know, and I don't know to the to the degree that Cynthia was involved in the production of the film. Maybe, maybe it was her pet project, and she was a producer, and she wanted to to play this character, and so she she and Terrence made this movie. That's I respect it. You know, I'm glad that she got to do that. But for me, as the audience member, um, it just wasn't the right casting for at least a third of the movie, maybe more uh, because Emily is so young. And then despite the fact that time passes dramatically, I mean, we talk, we're talking 25 years uh, in this film passes by from when Nixon starts playing the character to her dying. Um, There is no discernible change in any of the characters. They don't look older. They don't look different. Nothing changes about the environment. Um, there's even babies that are born early in earlier scenes. They do not show up as young children. So there's very sm- small notices for the passage passage of time, uh, and that made it also kind of hard to follow. I feel like I'm just like really crapping on this movie, and I'm really not intending to. But it was a really odd experience. Uh, I ended up actually pausing halfway and finishing it the next day because it was very difficult for me to sit and just pay attention to it because of how how odd uh the casting was and maybe i'm just maybe i'm just focusing way too much on this but i'll i've watched a lot of movies and not a lot of them strike strike me so clearly that something's wrong (laughs) with the casting um okay all that to say the show is excellent. Uh, the casting is excellent. The script is excellent. Um, if you can get an Apple TV Plus subscription, I know both of us highly recommend that you check this show out. Um, it's it's fantastic. All right. Well, we're coming into the, let's say, the home stretch of this particular podcast, and we're going to... Yeah. End in with a question from John. One final question from John. Yeah, um, I think we got we got a couple. We'll talk a little bit more. But um, what? Right, Emily's a poem, or Emily is a poet. So we haven't really talked too much about her poetry or what it means to us yet. So, uh, which of her poems resonates with you the most? For me. 
past to be a success is counted sweetest to them that ne'er succeed. Because it's something that you really do have to deal with in life. That you will go through life and you will fail. But if you keep working and pressing forward and eventually, hopefully, winning, that win is going to mean so much more to you than like the tens of twelves of whatever championships that are won by some other team. At that point, they're kind of nulled to the effect. You know, yay, we want another title. But for you, you have had to fight. You've had to crawl. You've had to claw. And even though it looked like it was impossible at many stages, you persevered and you finally got to achieve the top form of achievement. And in many ways, this also applies to not necessarily my personal life, but something I'm really into, and that is the Phoenix Suns basketball. When our team first started out, like a decade after we were formed, sometime in the 70s, we made it to the NBA Finals series or whatever. And we lost to the Celtics. Okay, no big deal. We'll get to the title again and we'll get them next time. Then in the 90s, we made it to the title. We had a great roster, headlined by none other than Charles Barkley. And we lost to Michael Jordan in the middle of his own three-peat. Then, several decades later, in 2019 or 2020, we smashed our way through the playoffs, and we're back in the finals. We're like, this is the year. This is the year we win our title. And we lost to the Bucks. And the thing is, that's disappointing, is that a lot of these teams that made the finals were really good teams. It's just that we managed to run into a team that, you know, is either better than us or understands us better than even we understand ourselves. And we end up losing in the most important series in the NBA. It's yeah, can be kind of sad. But you know what? Most of our roster is still with us. So I am still looking forward to this next season. And even though I've said it year upon year upon year, this is our year. This is the year we make up for losing in the 70s and the 90s and 2019, 2020. This is the year we grab that title and hoist the Larry O'Brien. And when we do, it will be a Swedish satisfaction any fan or athlete can ever feel because of all the work and loss we had to go through to get to it. All right, what's your favorite poem? Um, my, favorite, my favorite poem, I guess I should say my, my favorite poem so far uh, is uh, Wild Nights, Wild Nights. Um, it's short. I would read it all, but I don't want to get into copyright stuff. But um, just looking at it here, uh, the thing that like visually strikes me is that the lines seem to be ordered like waves, um, which is really interesting uh, as like a visual look of of, yeah. of waves in the text. So um, 
in addition to that, it's it's about it's about passion, it's about longing, it's about um, about the the satisfaction and the um, yeah the the satisfaction and the the comfort of uh, of being with somebody that that you love, and I think that that really appeals to me. Um, so I think that's so far my favorite poem of uh, Emily's. That's that's a good poem. All right, so it appears to be wrapping up time right now. Let's see. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, looks uh, like. Yeah, looks like we're we're wrapping up here. So well, um, one more thing we're going to do. Well, there's two things yeah. we're going to do. First, we're going to ask about. Uh, you're going to ask. Well, you ask actually, because you are the the interviewer. Okay. <laughs> yeah. All right. Cool. Uh, so, right, we got, we know which poems can connect for us the most. So just, uh, which, which episodes of the show, uh, or which episode of the show would you say, uh, st- stuck out the most? Well, there were plenty of, of, like, emotional scenes and stuff in these, in the shows, like, as far as I've watched, which was everything. One episode that stood out just for being such a funny interlude was that episode where Emily goes off to see Henry David Thoreau at Walden Cabin where he was uh, sitting there and just writing about nature and whatever and finding out one, not only is he basically just like a guy who still lives with his parents who regularly bring him laundry and stuff he's also Don Mulaney I mean, I obviously the obviously Dickinson doesn't know that, but as someone who's been a huge fan of John Mulaney's stand-up, I mean, I burst out laughing. Yeah. John Mulaney is Henry David Thoreau. <laughs> the more you think about it, the yeah, more you it worked really well. It. Yeah. Yeah, hilarious. That that episode is awesome. What's your favorite uh, episode? I think for me, it's actually the pilot of season one, which is the pilot of the show, uh, because I did not stop for death. Uh, based on that that poem, um, I think it's got a lot of scenes of of Emily living her life. It sets up a lot of the plots and conflict for the rest of the show, so you get a good look at all the different players in her life and all the different characters and what kind of people they are and what kind of people they're. They might be a little bit later as she's kind of working through things, but uh, it also features heavily um, visions of death that she has of a carriage wandering around and a, a conversation that she has uh, with death personified in a carriage ride that they go on together. And uh, it's just a really good picture of what the show is going to be and that how it's going to be witty and funny and thought provoking while also doing a pretty good job of exploring the imagination of this very interesting woman who wrote some incredible poetry that we don't really know that much about uh, because she stayed home and and wrote letters and wrote poetry, and that's kind of all she did. Uh, So I think the pilot does an excellent job of kind of setting up the show. So I think that's probably my my favorite episode. Mm, Good choice. Now, before we finally, finally wrap up tonight, uh, we just like to make an announcement that uh, at some point, probably near the end of this season, we are going to have a workshop episode. 
but it's a workshop episode. You're going to send us papers that you think really need help, either grammatically or through some like creative zhuzhing up. Not too far, though. We don't want your paper to turn into our paper, but to a limit, to a degree, we can help you out. And we'll start accepting uh, submissions today. And uh, you can send those submissions to, where would you say? To say uh, either my email or yours. So that's yeah. going to be john, J-O-N, at rightofpassagepod.com or cal at rightofpassagepod.com. Either of those will get to us. Um, yeah. And I would say it also doesn't have to be papers. It's just anything that, that yeah, you're working you on. With, yeah. Um, well, we'd be happy to take a look. And um, if you don't want it to be read on the podcast, uh, please don't, or please let us know. Uh, yes, we will absolutely. not do that. But if you don't mind, uh, we'll probably be working on these in real time as a podcast episode. So uh, just a FYI. Anything that's sent to us may be used in an episode. So, um, yeah, that's a good plug for our upcoming at some point season finale. (laughs) All right. And I guess we'll see you uh, guys next time. The next episode is going to be a real good one. Episode three is the hero's journey. Sounds kind of boring on the surface, but... It will end up blowing your mind once we dig deep into it and you show how much it impacts not just fiction, but your everyday life. So cool. Right. Can't wait to see you. Yeah. Gonna be good stuff. All right. Well, I'm Caleb. And I'm Jonathan. Don't forget to like and subscribe. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye. Bye.